Hello and welcome to the podcast series Raw Talent with me Fiona Abrahams where I'm deep diving behind the scenes into the careers, aspirations and inspiration of the many skilled and talented individuals who enable the fashion and creative industries to feed our passion for clothing and product. Throughout this podcast series I will be reaching out to the global community, exploring the industry through their eyes, asking people to share insights about the work they do, how they got started, their most compelling experiences, the trials and tribulations they have faced and overcome, who they have met along the way, the lasting friendships formed, the part culture plays in the work they do, and their thoughts on their futures and the future of the industry as we navigate the coronavirus pandemic. Welcome to Series 3, Episode 3 of Raw Talent. I am speaking with Kieran Hukin, founder of Swift Home. Kieran is revolutionising the home furnishing market with great quality sofas that do not require an enactment of a sketch from friends to get them through the front door. Over plenty of cups of tea and lots of brainstorming, the sofa in a box was born. A sofa which could be delivered to your door in 48 hours through the tightest of entranceways and assembled in minutes. Built in their own factory by highly skilled craftsmen, Swift have created a seamless, effortless product offering, which is not only convenient, but also incredibly comfortable and meets the needs of the modern consumer, which is the philosophy at the heart of every decision they make as a people-first company. Hi, Kieran. Welcome to Raw Talent. Hi, Bernard. Thanks very much for having me. Pleasure. So we should start by telling everyone how we met, which actually came about from one of our team members who was on an urgent sofa hunting mission. And she discovered Swift Online and uh, being wowed by the comfort, quality, ease and speed of delivery. um, It kind of got us thinking about how clever your concept is and prompted us to invite you onto Raw Talent. So that's how it all came about. And you shared with me previously that the early signs of a buzzing entrepreneur waiting to be unleashed manifested during your school days, much to the horror of your parents. Tell us the story. Uh, Yeah, that's that's very true. So, yeah, firstly, thanks to the member of your team for buying one of our sofas. (laughs) Again, uh, that's uh, always great to see. Uh, Always good. (laughs) Yeah, it's always a great start. It kind of does break the ice a bit, so that's that's great. And uh, every every sale is still special to us. We're so young, so it's really great. Um, But yeah, it was uh, quite early on, really. I um, kind of got a uh, idea in my head that there was a limited amount of. I think it was when Jamie Oliver actually was starting to be quite prevalent in ruining school lunches for kids. Okay. Uh, He does great work, obviously, but as a kid, it's gone. And um, they were rationing like chocolate. So I, I borrowed money from everyone in my class to buy all the fudge bars in the canteen and then sold them at a profit to another class in our year group and then repaid everyone and kept the profits. And uh, yeah, my my teachers weren't very happy with that. All my parents who were trying to explain to me that, you know, borrowing money from people <laughs> to take on an enterprise was risky and uh, probably shouldn't have done it and it wasn't fair and I didn't really see the see the problem with it. I never really considered that it wasn't going to work. I thought I'll have all the chocolate and loads of hungry people and that's a great business and 
yeah, I'm sold out quicker of those fudge bars than anything I've ever done since. Fantastic. I just think it's, yeah, it was just an early sign, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah, early sign that uh, maybe authority figures and myself don't get along very well. <laughs> oh, and it's just, yeah, genius though. As your 19-year-old self, what inspired you to swap um, kind of dirt and grime for a place at university when you first started out? Yeah, well, I mean, I guess it's just a trodden path, isn't it? So, um, you know, I was working in, um, in, in, uh, in a factory making kind of uh, fiberglass sheets. It was quite hot, dirty, dusty. And I thought, no, I'll go to university. I'll make that decision. Um, which really I was only doing because it was just a dumb thing to do. Um, I'd never really considered a career in manufacturing or product. And, uh, so I went to go and just before I did, I got offered a full-time job at the factory I was working in. They offered, you know, I was very fortunate they said that they'd uh, support my studying through the Open University and help my kind of career progression. And I thought, well, that does sound like a good plan. I mean, it's kind of too good to be true. So I took it and stayed in manufacturing. I quite quickly actually dropped the degree. I just in favour of doing other entrepreneurial things, which is, um, look, it's an option, right? I wouldn't recommend it for everyone, uh, you know, because the fallback on education is great. But uh, for me, it wasn't really my cup of tea. So I've got about 30 open university credits in business and I never really finished. So I just stuck to the the work progression in the factory. I just fell in love with manufacturing, really. and. What were you making at the time? What was what were you manufacturing? Uh, sheets of fiberglass plastic that go on the side of truck bodies. It's really romantic. It's a very very uh, <laughs> very romantic product. But basically, the outer skin for kind of caravans, and trucks, and uh, transportation that kind of thing. So it's a continuous process. Yeah. Night shift, hot, dirty, smelly. I loved every minute of it. And you had two early business failures. Tell us about the um, outdoors brand and what you learned from those early initiatives. Because clearly, this budding entrepreneur was dying to come out. Yeah, I um, I saved some money. Um, yeah. at university. I put it into a, a business called Summit Clothing, which was a online only social enterprise outdoor clothing retailer. So I retailed brands, other people's brands. Uh, similar to like likes of Blacks or Cotswolds or any of these kind of major things. Um, and I spent all of my money on inventory, uh, on uh, a website, which I paid someone to build, way too much money. To oh, so many people fall into that pitfall and don't realise. I know. Uh, it's awful. Like being awful. like the 20 or like 19-something-old 20-year-old uh, put a tweet out asking for help to build a website. Next thing I know, I'm four grand down. I haven't got the website for ages. Um, so that was a lesson, uh, a hard lesson. But that's fine. I mean, you can always have these like kind of experiences. And yeah, most people do. Most people do. I've been there. <laughs> exactly. Until it's your own money, like you can be told whatever. You know, people can tell you whatever do it this way do it that way until it's your own skin in the game it, it's really hard to learn and um, yeah. you know, like it's, that was a mistake and then I just had way too much stock and I 
I was too focused on the social enterprise side of it and doing good with the money that I hadn't yet made. I didn't focus on my distribution. I didn't focus on my marketing. Uh, I really I didn't even have a budget for marketing. I was just on social media trying to sell it to people uh, and going to the post office in my lunch break to post all the stock out. But I very quickly kind of ran out of cash there. And what I also found out is that clothing is really hard because you have all the different sizes and colors. So yeah. to have some cover of one or two SKUs is, is a nightmare for someone who's trying to finance it with very little, relatively little cash. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. But great experience. So and at least, you know, there were some good learnings from it. What would be the main sort of learning that you would you would take away from that? Uh, your primary focus needs to be looking after the business and looking after a business is getting it to a point where it's profitable. And then you can start doing all the other bits and pieces. But really, your biggest responsibility as a business owner or a founder or even a manager is make sure the business is going to be there to do the good you want it to do. Uh, that's first and foremost every day. Yeah, that makes sense. And after a few different jobs whilst um studying at university, you wanted to move to London. Um, what was the role you landed and how did it lead to the creation of Swift? Oh, I've got a production planner role in London. So I okay. was manufacturing. There's not many manufacturing jobs in London, as you can imagine. Oh. A bit of FMCG and a little bit of bespoke furniture, and that's pretty much it. Um, so I landed a production planning role at the bespoke furniture maker in West London. And I... Yeah, I worked my way up there. It was a great place, you know, had great products, a good environment for kind of opportunity. Within a couple of years, I was on the board there and I had this idea, from, it was from a manufacturing point of view, actually, to do a similar concept to Swift that we could manufacture at the last second. So we customize it right at the last minute and do a very yeah. quick turnaround system. I did it because I wanted to reduce manufacturing time rather than I saw it as a brand and a product. So I had it in my head that there was something that could be done with a quick solution in this industry. Uh, but the idea didn't fit their business plan and what they were wanting to do. So um, you know, after I pitched it and it was turned away, I left pretty much the next day and started started up on my by myself to uh which is eventually all roads have led to where Swift is today and as a brand standing by itself. And Yeah, yeah absolutely. Because you have pretty limited fi financial resources at that point. How did you actually get it off the ground? Um, yeah, we are very limited. So we, yeah. we basically, we had about £4,000. Right. And, and we were fortunate enough to be in a position where myself and my business partner could go um, about nine months without an income. So uh, we had a little bit of cash in the business and then we had a little bit of runway before we needed to be making some money. So we set up, I would suggest if anyone out there is looking to start, set yourself some goals before you start, write them down and judge yourselves by those expectations rather than when you're in the heat of it, running it day to day in three months or four months time, it's very easy to... Uh, convince yourself things are going well and that it will be all right in another week or two. So we set ourselves a goal that we need to have X amount of quotes out by three months and X amount of orders by six months. Otherwise, we're going to pack it in. And we hit it just 
with literally days to spare, but we were, we had the conviction that if we didn't achieve that, we would have walked away from it because, uh, you know, it had to have some momentum. But we took, we basically started a bespoke business, the bespoke furniture on a commission basis. So it meant we could take orders up front and make it to order. Um, so we would then use those first few orders to start buying some tools, hiring some people to manufacture um, and slowly build our factory capacity and our capability based on, you know, those forward orders from interior design clients. Amazing. That's really great. And as your pre-orders grew and you were able to sort of invest back in the business, you built a factory in Porto, out in Portugal, which now employs 47 people. Tell us a bit about the factory and why it has a continual waiting list of people wanting to work there. Yeah, sure. So, um, yeah, we have our, our own factory uh, out there. It's about uh, 5,000 square metres, so pretty pretty sizable now. Yeah. Uh, rapidly. So uh, three years ago, we had just an empty shed and my business partner and the, and the first employee we had were painting the floors together. Um, but what, we, what we've got out there is like a really nice, we make what I like to think is really beautiful products. So we've got a beautiful factory to match it. Not on the outside. On the outside, it just looks like a giant tin shed like most workshops do. They all do. Yeah, but on the inside, you know, it's very well lit, very spacious high ceilings we've got numerous break rooms we, we really try and have an environment that's conducive for making beautiful things in and i think right. that's really like really really important uh, really important because people are spending all day in the factory and the exactly. more when you can make it the more people want to be there exactly and it's hard to you know have a culture where every detail matters when you yeah. roof it right it, it just goes against it goes against what you're trying to say. So, um, you know, that's that's really important to us. And, and as a result, we're, we're really fortunate that we've got a waiting list of people that are waiting to join us. And, and that's just a fantastic place for any business to be in because, you know, talent is, is everything, as you know, from, from your industry, right? Talent's hard. Yeah. It's an amazing place to be in. But then I guess word's got around that it's a great place to work. Yeah, well, I hope so. We've got good staff retention. We've got really, really low turnover, like single-digit percentages. So, and uh, most of the people that joined us in year one are still with us, with the exception of maybe one. Yeah, yeah. Sometimes things change, but yeah, yeah. it's amazing track record. Yeah, it's something we pride ourselves on. Yeah, no, you should be really proud of that. You started working on your design strategy last year, and the website went live on the seventeenth of December. Being brand new to the market, um, you launched your website and were not really expecting to be findable, but you sold your, sofa, your first sofa the next day. How does the story unfold? Oh, yeah, it's an absolute disaster. Sorry. <laughs> uh, I remember I was, sat in the, I was sat in the boardroom and uh, James, our head of e-commerce, like, ran in like into a board meeting, just opened the door and was like, we've sold one, we've sold one. And I remember standing up, and this was pre-COVID, uh, giving them a great big hug and just both being really excited. And my business partner said, that's great, but we don't have any here. So what are you going to do now? And I was like, okay, back to earth with a thumb. Oh. All our sofas were still in Portugal at the time. So determined not to fail on our first one, we flew the sofa in a massive freight from Portugal to Heathrow. And our head of e-commerce took his... Um, his discovery 
to Heathrow, picked it up and delivered it to the client in Camden Town themselves. So uh, luckily, uh, the good chap that bought it, he still has the sofa. He had a really narrow staircase. He couldn't get it, any other sofas up. And he was super happy. Um, and, you know, we're still in touch with him today and, you know, laugh and joke that he was the first one. And, you know, probably the most expensive sofa we've ever sold. We lost so much money, but, <laughs> you know, it's about setting a culture and an expectation of your team that, you know, you do not fail. Absolutely, but it's a great story. <laughs> yeah, it's a great story um, now. <laughs> yes, yeah, it must have been pretty um, uh, emotional at the time, I can imagine. Uh, yeah, I mean, the, the sensible thing would have been to just call the customer and say, sorry, we're not actually live yet. Yes. That. Um, but it, that's, you know, if you don't go for it on your first yeah. step, then, yeah, it sets a bad, bad precedent. Well, and you, you've got a great story to tell. So um, as yeah. it's great, you'll always look back on that and think, yeah, we did it. We were really determined. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I think it's one of those um, fun stories to be like, look how silly we were. We're not like that anymore. <laughs> we're, we're, we're somewhat more efficient now, but Aww. we still have our moments. So. Well, it's lovely that he's still got the sofa. And does he know the story? Yes, yeah, he knows. Yeah. <laughs> he knows because we delivered it by hand and uh, told him the story, had a cup of tea. Excellent, excellent. so good. And you officially, you actually officially launched in July this year um, and you needed to um, really get your skates on and make that happen to stay afloat, to, to be able to stay afloat financially. Mm-hmm. How has the consumer reacted to the concept of a sofa in a box which can be literally delivered to your door in 48 hours and fit through the tightest of entrance ways and be assembled in minutes. What's the response been? Uh, yeah, it's been pretty overwhelming, actually. Uh, people responded really well, really positively. I think um, you know, most people are delighted with it. They don't expect it to be of such good quality, to be so well-designed, so nicely thought through. You know, We even get compliments on our packaging, which is lovely because we put a lot of time into that. Um, nice. really, like when you're setting out in, in things the things you think will be easier are normally the hardest and the things you think will be really difficult tend to unfold before you um like the packaging was so hard to get right but i think uh the the the, the reaction's been overwhelming and you know uh customers have been delighted with great reviews people referring their friends to us referring people you know, people often put out shouts on Instagram like, oh, help, I need a sofa and I can't wait 15 weeks. And they'll message us and say, like, 10 people said, go to Swift, um, which is great, you know, because what the big question mark we had was we've got to educate people that there is a different way of buying furniture. Yeah. And so we've got to do the education piece and at the same time sell them the product. So that was yeah. the thing part. So it's great that we've managed to be able to do that. Absolutely, and there's no better endorsement than recommendations. No, definitely not. Definitely not. That's the the real sense. Absolutely, absolutely. If people buy something and they love it, then they just want to tell everyone. So, yeah, Yeah. that's how we came to find you. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Best kind of branding, the best kind of marketing. Best kind of marketing, absolutely, absolutely. You initially thought that it would appeal to renters, this concept, um, people that move regularly, but what did you actually discover in reality? Yeah, we did. We thought, and perhaps this because I was a renter at the time, and the example of maybe being a little bit um, blinkered and living in your own bubble. 
we didn't really do any surveys either, so it was just our gut feeling. Um, in this case, was very wrong. But we thought it'd be a case people buying something they want to move with them every six months. If you're living somewhere on a six month lease, why would you wait half of that for a sofa? Yeah. Um, but what we found is actually 80% of our customers own their own property. Um, and people that own their own property tend to be more um, exacting in what they want, obviously, because you live there, it's yours, you're proud of it. And that's, that's absolutely not to say that people that rent aren't always like that, but we tend to see that people that own their property are a little bit more discerning. They want something that's stylish. They want something that's going to last. They want to know that the fabrics are going to be okay. And when maybe they eventually have kids or if they already have a family, that's family friendly. Um, and that, that's really changed our kind of whole view over the business. That one bit of data meant that we realized that actually flat pack, assembled by yourself, whatever you want to call it, isn't synonymous with cheap and poor quality like people are buying these as their forever pieces or for you know if not forever for 10 years or however long people average own a sofa and that means that we can really grow our brand within what is a you know an affluent and design led part of the part of the consumer base yeah and i guess that's the um and that's the uh, mentality that you're changing I guess, you know, there's lots of um, self-assembly, lots of businesses doing kind of inexpensive self-assembly uh, off products offers, but actually bringing quality and craftsmanship into the mix and being able to create something people can self-assemble. I can't think of anyone that's really been doing that. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's interesting because you've got to rely on just the fundamentals is that, you know, great product speaks for itself and you really put the effort into it and make it great. Yeah, I'm not saying that that's enough. It's, it's obviously not. There's a whole lot that goes into it. But if you've got that fundamental right, then you can be in a good space. And people, you know, assembling furniture is typically a miserable task. <laughs> that's true. So we, we're not saying ours is fun, but what we're saying is it isn't awful. Uh, it's okay to do it's not painful it is easy um and you know you know what's fun is spending time with your family or you know sports or watching tv whatever you want to call it it would be fun but it is easy yeah yeah it's it's really fantastic and it's especially just the ease of the whole thing which is what people want and the immediacy is another important element like you said before, people don't want to wait 12 weeks for a sofa. No, exactly. We launched Next Day Delivery two weeks ago, and it's been really, really popular. And I imagine. We were just talking to our team, and we decided, do we charge for it? Do we charge it as a premium? Said, well, you know, let's just do it. Let's just do free Next Day Delivery and see what the uptake is. And it's been phenomenal. And, yeah. Um, yeah, but that's what people expect these days. Um, and that's okay and they're right to expect it because it can be done and if it can be done it should be done absolutely absolutely what has been the biggest challenge but the greatest learning opportunity so far um biggest challenge probably getting the boxes right actually as I mentioned yeah. earlier the product itself you know that we're experts in that we, we've been between us all we've got like over 100 years of furniture experience and yeah that's okay but the, the boxes were a bit out of our comfort zone we had to work with some good partners on that and really kind of make sure we've got that right we've got the biggest 
printed color boxes in the world, which I think is quite sad. That is probably one of the things I'm most proud of <laughs> of this team's achievements because you know it would have been it would have been really easy to well, drop the idea of putting color on it and drop the idea of making them look nice and just do what we were advised to do by all the packaging companies, which is just have plain brown boxes that staple together and that we hold together using tape. And we didn't. We pushed hard. All our boxes are tape-free, staple-free, glue-free. They just fold in on themselves uh, so that you can unpack them easily and recycle them uh, easily. And, you know, we we pushed for that because we wanted it to be part of the experience. And, yeah. and we learned, actually, the learning really is that just because everyone's telling you no and it's not possible, if you... That's because they want to do what's convenient for them. They don't want to do what's convenient for you. They're just thinking this is the whole this I think this is very indicative of where we are in the market regardless of your product. It's people like yourself who are coming along and saying, no, we're not going to do it like that because that's how you've always done it and that's all, all you know and all you want to do because you're not interested in doing something different or thinking about the planet. We're going to do this because we do want to think about the planet and we do want something that's fully recyclable. And that's the difference that people are making at the moment. There are so many entrepreneurs out there going, no, we're going to do this. <laughs> yeah, and I think you have to because – Yeah. And, you know, what I would say is each time we've come up against that resistance, like it's always been those key moments where we pushed through and persevered and now looking back is why we have the success we have today. It was the decision to push and get the colour done. It was a decision to push and have it done without – any um, plastic, uh, you know, wrapping staples. It was the not taking no for an answer uh, that meant that we've got the edge and the competitive edge that we've got now. And I always tell that to my team now is like, you know, do not compromise ever on anything. If it's going to compromise our customers' experience, do not do it. I'd rather not do something than compromise our customers' experience. And we're getting there, you know, and our partners are, are getting there. We've got a logistic partner who was similar, who, you know, initially found the way we wanted to do things a challenge, but they've rebuilt and recoded the way that they operate in their warehouse. And they've rolled that out now across all of their customers because of the innovation we push for. And it, sometimes it means doing the extra work yourself and we took on some of the responsibility of doing the coding and doing the, you know, the heavy lifting for them to get them to a stage where they could implement it. But that's wow. what we have to do. Absolutely. And good on you for doing that because then you're also revolutionising, you're helping to revolutionise an industry and helping to push people's thought processes forward. And it just takes, it, it, it just takes someone to go, no, we could do it like this. Let's show you. So yeah. fantastic, really fantastic and amazing. They've rolled that out to um, their other customers. Yeah. No, it's going to them, I think. Uh, maybe I should start charging the fee. <laughs> Absolutely. You're definitely um, trailblazing here, that's for sure. Um, what are your plans for the evolution of the business? Uh, well, obviously, we've got a fair bit of our growth path to go. So we're you know, accelerating quite quickly towards profitability, which is great. For a D2C business, I think we're going to achieve it within 12 months of our official launch, um, which is, you know, be a fantastic result for the team. Um, but yeah. we're going to, yeah, we're going to stay really focused. So we're going to 
We've got more product launches next year. We we don't want more than kind of a dozen products at most. So we want to make sure that they're as revolutionary as our current ones, if not more so, and keep raising the bar. Um, and then you know, eventually we'll look at rolling this out into other territories, but we're we're firmly focused on the UK right now. Uh, a mentor of mine did, told me to own your own backyard. But yeah, 100%. Very good advice. Get it right here. That's uh, That makes a lot of sense. And upon reflection, has the pandemic helped or hindered your mission, would you say? Um, okay, this is the hard one. So I think you ah. can't deny that having the high street closed helps an online-only business, like for sure. It definitely helped in that sense. We're getting more size of prize online to go after. It reduced cost per click. It reduced... Um, advertising budgets across the world so definitely helped in that way but we also manufacture our products ourselves so trying to manufacture throughout the lockdowns and the pandemic and all the isolation and the test and trace that reduced our workforce quite rightly so you know if you get told to stay at home you stay at home yeah um, all of those things have hindered our manufacturing side and our supply chain you yeah. know such a global supply chain that even though we manufacture in Europe, we've got pieces that are coming from all over the world to make up our products. You know, it's been it's been painful. So I would hate to, to not answer the question, but I think it's benefited and hindered us in equal measure. But yeah, been, you know, to come out net net is a result because some industries that have been devastated by it. So we we count ourselves as lucky for sure. Yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. And you mentioned new product to come in 2021. What's on the uh, What's on the agenda in terms of new product? What can we be looking forward to? Oh, well, I can't give away all the secrets, but um, we will be uh, launching a sofa bed. Nice. It's, it's my. It's one of the. It's the, one of the last great crimes against furniture. It's one of the last great crimes against furniture. It's so true. It, it, it's just like, would you like a rubbish sofa or a rubbish bed? Or sometimes you can have both. You can have both. Yeah, why not have both? And we'll charge you double the price of a normal sofa or a bed. Uh, yes. And, you know, for us, we'll stay true to our values. So it'll still be next day delivery, no tools assembly, assembled by one person. But we want it to be so good that, you know, because for me with the sofa beds, like when you have guests, you normally end up sleeping on it because you give you your bed or the bed and you end up on the sofa bed. So buy yourself one that's nice because it's going to be you on it. So we want a, a good bed and a good sofa built into one. That would be amazing. And then you won't be walking around for a week with backache. Exactly right. And, yes. and I guess the only downside is your in-laws might stay for longer than you intend. But, um, True. Yeah, yeah. You might have to suddenly have urgent things that you need to do. Absolutely. Yeah, <laughs> we can work that out. So we're doing that. And yes. we've, got, uh, we've got some hard goods coming as well, so some furniture pieces, coffee table, side table, that kind of thing. Maybe a media unit. It's yeah. a very neglected area of the market, I feel, that nobody – it's very unloved, isn't it, the sofa bed area of the market? Yeah, the sofa bed definitely is. Um, and, and it's – I think it's just one of the areas where we think we can really add value across the board. So – Exciting. It's, it's got to be done. It's got to be done yeah. right. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Very good. And my closing question, can you believe we're nearly at the end, um, is this. 
Your goal is to take the waiting out of the equation whilst producing high quality products and a great customer experience. If you could hire any three people in the world to lend their expertise to to your business, who would you choose and why? That's a, that's a great, great question um, and quite fun. So I definitely just realised I was supposed to put some more thought into this before the podcast. <laughs> I'm now going to have to do it on the fly. You have to wing it, I'm afraid, yeah. Absolutely. So, um, but I think I would definitely hire Elon Musk. So popular, Elon Musk. I knew you were going to say that. I thought I was thinking in my head. I bet he comes out with Elon Musk. <laughs> yeah, he's just uh, he's definitely like a hero of mine. I can't he's amazing. It. He's absolutely amazing. I, I just can't believe the stuff that you know. I'm just ridiculous. Absolutely ridiculous. Really. Yeah. Everything he does, he does it properly. Yeah. You mentioned Trailblazer earlier. Like one thing he's doing in the sofas, but literally doing it with transportation and infrastructure you know really difficult challenging things that people have shied away from mm. for nearly 100 years we haven't really built proper infrastructure since the railways and he's just tackling it so that mindset would be great to have on board that's mm. one person can you imagine the safer bet that you'd end up with if you had him on board yeah well i really want to i really like keep pushing for this but i really want to put one of our armchairs in space and i've worked out the cost of it Okay. And we could do a great promotional video, but I keep getting vetoes at the board, which I think is outrageous. So if Elon was on board, maybe we could get some discounted rates for SpaceX. Absolutely. Um, Excellent. Who'd be next on your list to join Elon? Uh, well, well, I think once you've got Elon, you probably wouldn't need anyone else, right? But I'm not going to dodge the question. That so <laughs> uh, the next on my list, I think I would, I'm going to go really like mainstream here and say I'll go with Jeff Bezos from Amazon. He's popular. To help on the logistics side, I think yeah. Amazon is the greatest logistics business ever assembled. Absolutely. Uh, so that takes care of that. That would be an interesting challenge for him. Furniture. Exactly. Well, don't say that too loudly because if he decides to come into furniture, then uh, you know we're all out of the job, aren't we? So. <laughs> I think they've got enough on their plate at the moment with everything else. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, and then on the third piece, I would probably bolster the design side, and I would say, no, quick bit of Google because I can't remember what it is. So to bolster the design side, and I hadn't heard of this guy till the other day when our design director John did his piece in Vanity Fair, which is pretty cool. Uh, it, I would bring him in to assist John. I think John's amazing, but uh, he could have his design idol alongside him. So, and that's uh, Dieter Rams. He's a German engineer. Uh, nice. He had like the principle of less but better, which I think sums up our design philosophy. And uh, yes. have alongside uh, Musk and David. Sounds perfect. What a dream team. I love that. Thank you so much. Thank you for coming on here today. It's been so lovely to have you. Oh, thank you very much for having me. I really appreciate it. Pleasure. Swift is the story of a budding entrepreneur waiting to be unleashed, which manifested during Kieran's school days, much to the horror of his teachers and parents. He takes us on a journey of early business attempts, getting down dirty in manufacturing, before following his passion to work in London, where he landed a job with a bespoke furniture maker. 
Kieran's entrepreneurial spirit rose again, and after pitching an idea to the board which they rejected, he left and started Swift with his business partner. Taking the learnings from those early experiences, they wrote a business plan and stuck to the mission, which allowed them to evolve from a bespoke commission-based business model. Swift is driven by a desire to combine high-quality, beautifully designed products with convenience through easy self-assembly and delivery within 48 hours, with a people-first mindset at the heart of their culture. The overwhelming customer, customer reaction can be seen on the website. Swift are blazing a trail in innovation and ingenuity, revolutionising packaging and logistics processes along the way. The next milestone is to write one of the last great crimes against furniture, the sofa bed. If you enjoyed this episode, join me next time when I will be speaking with Elodie Carpentier, founder of La Rouge Francais, who is reshaping the world of cosmetics. And if you are enjoying the series, hit the subscribe button to receive notifications on upcoming episodes, where you'll get to hear first-hand insights from across the global fashion and creative industries.